You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. So uh, you've been a busy guy, I guess, since we last saw one another at Fort Benny. I have been traveling some, recovering from my shoulder surgery also. So I, I had a bad mountain bike crash. So I, oh, I, I'm finally getting uh, my range of motion and all that fun stuff back. So. Oh, my God. Uh, where did that happen? Uh, actually, I was riding back from swim practice with the kids. So it happened about a block from my house. Oh, my God. <laughs> I wish I had a better story. <laughs> I come up with a sexy story. <laughs> I just say I crashed my mountain bike and then people take it where they want. You know, so. It's so funny that they actually say even car accidents occur within a couple of miles from your home. Sure. Yeah, you something know. about the relaxing and yeah. uh, not being as attentive. I'll blame it on that instead of my... Trying to show off for the children. So. <laughs> were you out there popping wheelies in the road and stuff? And It was very close, yeah. yeah. The, the kids were doing stuff, and I was like, I can do that too. So was, <laughs> Ah, to feel young again. What, yeah. what does that do as I say, not as I do? <laughs> That's exactly right. And there's always a positive to things. And you know, I told my wife, I said, I would much rather go through this process this summer than have to handle one of the kids going through that. So, so there was a you know, a silver lining to it, I guess, that we didn't have a child with a fractured shoulder and having to go through that all summer. How old are your kids? Um, the little ones are nine and 11, so fifth and sixth graders. So. Oh, that would be a terrible age to have an injury yeah. like that. Yep, oh, I, I agree. Feel like that. <laughs> and then my son, my older son, is in RASP right now. He's the one that's down at Fort Benning, uh, graduates next week from RASP on his oh. way to the medic course. So he's going to be one of the regimental medics. So he'll go to Sockham at Bragg for eight months this fall. So. Oh, congratulations to him and to you. That's a, that's yeah. a awesome yeah, achievement. Yeah, it's very exciting. Oh. I got to pin his his wings on a few weeks ago. So it was a, that was a great moment as a dad to put your airborne wings on your son. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And then being able to go there as well and see the graduation from RASP, that's going to be really, it's going to be really awesome. Yeah, that'll be fun. Good luck to him in the medic course. I know that's like is so. This is how long have they been doing this? This is like a new, a newer thing for them, isn't it? Or have they been doing this for a while? Yeah, the regiment's been sending their medics to brag for the uh, the eighteen Delta course for a few years now. They've learned the value added by putting them through that longer course. Uh, so they they basically go through everything but the final phase of the Q course. Uh, but it, it just makes their medics so much more capable. It makes sense for a lot of reasons. That's awesome. That's good that they're getting that training because they yeah. definitely need it when they're out there. And they've got a great track record on the battlefield. You know, that's where this training, and it's almost 20 months he's in training before he even shows up at one of the battalions. Wow. Um, on, on a four-year so, enlistment, that's just amazing. That uh, is. But, but but so, their ability to to get to wounded guys and get them to aid stations and get them in helicopters, you know, has been amazing over the last you know ten years. So it, they've really learned a lot and and understand the value in training these kids that well. Well, just to have that because you have that delay time until they actually get to the aid station. So to have somebody that is so proficient in what they're doing right there on the spot is just that's incredible. And I'm sure like their numbers of saving people has skyrocketed since they've been doing this. Sure. Yeah. They, they, they have a great record on the, on the battlefield of getting guys to that next level of care. Uh, and then basically, you know, the, they take it to the trauma surgeons and all that, but it, it, you know, I don't know the specific numbers, but you know, the, 
the regiment's done very well in getting guys out of a, a, initial fights and, and getting them to treatment. So if he, when he gets out of the military, if he wants to pursue a medical degree, like what does this, does this offer him? Like, I'm sure advance advancement in, you know, for like education and where he needs to be. Right. Um, so a lot of the awesome. guys will transition to a, a P level, a PA level course. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. So it's, it's, you know, there's a few credits they still have to take and some of the, the civilian medical institutions don't recognize that military guys that are enlisted can really do that stuff. Oh, really? <laughs> so there's, well, that's nice. there's always been a battle back and forth between what 18 del- deltas really do in real life versus what, you know, the civilian medical folks think they do. Sounds like they need to reevaluate that course. Yeah. Well, again, I, I think some of it is that they allow them to do it because of their position and capabilities, but they still can't transition out to the outside civilian care and, and, and perform some of those same duties. Gotcha. Yeah. So now you were a former enlisted. You came in as an enlisted soldier. Did you go right into the Rangers or did you, were I you did. in a conventional I, army? I, I enlisted at 17 and, and that was my first assignment at 1st Battalion in Savannah. So I, I left home as a young kid, not really sure what I had got myself into, <laughs> but it was an amazing process. My my brother was a junior at West Point at the time and gave me some great advice and said, you know, if you're going to go, if you're going to go in and go to a good unit and you'll build a foundation, you know, whether you decide to stay in the military or decide to get out and go to college, you'll be better off either way. Um, and I, I loved what I did in the Rangers and, and, and that type of foundation really set me up well for other jobs and, and other opportunities and, and more, more assignments in the Rangers, you know, which was great. That was some great advice, actually. Yeah. yeah. You, you don't always listen to your big brother. but uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and probably when I was 17, I really didn't take it all in. But it's it's easier to say now uh, and, and look back at it. You know, I, I, I try and say some of that stuff to my children now. And they, they look at you. And then I try and explain that, you know, even today at my age, I still – get that light bulb every once in a while that oh that's what dad meant <laughs> so sometimes it takes longer to sink in the small victories you know i was in i was only in for 10 years and the only t- the time that i worked with regiment i had the best mentors and i was in e6 when i walked over there and i was it was you know working with them and for them was just incredible because they 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 care about what matters and that the mentorship and especially getting that at the beginning of your career is just I, I'm sure you can look back on your career and be like, like you just said, it's like, that was the best thing for me. And you have like such great mentors there. So, yeah. That was like the moment of my career was working with them. Great the, mentors over there. The one thing that I always said, once I decided to stay in, I always made it a point that if I could have 75 to 80% of the impact that the, my original leadership had on me when I was a private in the Rangers, then I was going where I needed to. Those NCOs and officers that I worked for as a young kid in, in the Ranger Battalion were so focused and so committed and, and really were amazing from a mentor perspective. And and when I, when I thought about those type of leaders as I progressed, I always thought back to them and I said, you know, am I doing enough to, to get to that kind of level where, you know, my subordinates are saying, Hey, you know, Moore's is doing the right thing. Uh, so I, I always tried to compare, you know, each successive position to, you know, the, those, uh, amazing NCOs and officers back in the early eighties. Uh, 
it, it was a tough time for the army coming that that post Vietnam era. Yeah. Um, the army was trying to change. You know, Reagan had given that big increase in pay, so it, it was an interesting dynamic for the military. And we didn't feel it as much in the Rangers because you know, we, we we trained hard. We we had the funding to support what we did, um, but it was. It was a great time to be there. It was a difficult time in the conventional army, though, like you said, because we were trying to get away from the kind of the stigmatism, bad stigmatism of being a a force during Vietnam, like you said, to now an all-volunteer force where they're trying to raise the bar as far as enlistment, trying to get more quality individuals, be all you can be, started coming about. And you're right. It was kind of that growing period that was occurring within the army. It was. And... And again, we were somewhat shielded from it coming up in the special ops community. Uh, one of the things that I remember pretty distinctly was uh, I, I was in Charlie Company in the 1st Ranger Battalion as a brand new private. Uh, 1982, I got there. And it wasn't long after the Operation Eagle Claw, the rescue mission in uh, Iran. And those NCOs that had gone on that from our company seemed even more focused than everyone else. They had been on a mission that people looked at like, um, you know, this this wasn't a success. Um, you guys need to train harder. And it felt like, you know, they just wanted to get even better than they were to prep for that next opportunity. They didn't want to have any more failures. They wanted to prove that the Rangers were put together for the right reason. So, you know, being there in the, in the 80s, um, you know, it, it really was amazing timing. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Grenada happened and there was an opportunity to do something in that next mission and, and and test those capabilities at the next level. So, you know, those type of events as a as a youngster, you know, really made a big difference career wise and, and how we how we thought about how I thought about personally. I came in to be in the Rangers, I got to deploy, but I really like what I'm doing and, and surrounded myself with amazing people and, and I like this environment. So I um, I fought to stay in that type of environment. You know, I, you know that Abram, Abrams Charter says we should go out and serve in the regular military and, and, and take all those Rangers lessons learned with you. Uh, so we, we, we do that. But then as soon as you leave the Ranger Regiment, you try as hard as you can to get back. To get back, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of what you did because you ended up coming back into 1st Battalion as a squad leader about, what, four years yeah. later or so. I, uh, I left, uh, I, I went to Panama, so I jumped down there for a little while. Um, had a great time living in Central America and everything that was going on in the mid eighties with, uh, uh, you know, the Contra effort, the, all the work in El Salvador and Honduras. So it was really an interesting time to be in Central America in 84 and 85. I left there to go to the 18 Delta course. So I went through the SF medic course, just like my, my son is getting ready to go into. So there's some neat parallels here. I was one of those rangers who was better suited to carry a rifle than an aid bag. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I didn't make it and then was able to return back to the ranger regiment uh, as a as a squad leader. Do you ever um, think about recycling and going back and trying again? Um, well, the way the bear program was set up, there wasn't a lot of opportunities to transition to another MOS. I, I was a young NCO and I, I saw – Tom Cruise riding a motorcycle and I was like, I'm going to, you know, Top Gun had just come out. So I was like, I'm going to make it through that course. I'm going to get my cool motorcycle. And um, I didn't think about all the possibilities of getting recycled and not making it. Right. <laughs> so you don't put all those variables in when you're young and invincible. Um, so when I was dropped from the course, 
um, the way the bear program was set up, you couldn't transition to another 18 series option. You, you basically got released. I was like, I'd love to go to the 18 Bravo course and try the weapons piece. Cause that's what I did. Uh, but there was no, no transfer. Uh, so wow, that was my, my, my 10 month experience, um, fighting through that very difficult course. And, and, uh, again, a lot of, a lot of lessons learned. I always take those as a positive, uh, when I was a, a ranger, a platoon leader, you know, three years later, all that medical stuff that I learned and I, I brought with me and, and trained my soldiers uh, above and beyond the, the basic standards of combat life-saving, you know, paid off when we were in that big fight in Somalia. You think your son's going to get the bug once he starts hanging around those guys that are going through Q and uh, through the course there with him? Um, I, I think so. He, he Again, he's been around. He, he was born at Fort Benning, so he's been around those type of people. I, I think once he starts training and realizing some of the other opportunities and options, he'll he'll, he'll commit to that also. It, it's hard to say. Like I look back at when I was 18, 19, and I really wasn't committing to a long road. Uh, I, I liked it later, but you know, I was I was taking it a promotion assignment at a time, trying not to get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll we'll see how he develops. Um, you know, he talks about doing some other. Uh, medical opportunities, some other units. So again, he, he understands that there's a hierarchy and, and, and that he wants to set him up himself up to do that at some point. What made you decide to go to OCS? I, I had thought about it earlier um, when I was um, an enlisted guy. When I was in 1st Battalion, I had come back from Grenada. Uh, my brother was a, a senior at West Point at the time, and I had always thought about that. I didn't know the routes or the different opportunities. So I applied to the prep school as a, as a young specialist. My brother was up at West Point. So we, we sent the packet up through so we could get some eyes on and look at it. And, uh, I got a standard form letter back from the prep school. I'm sorry, you know, stay where you're at. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I, uh, I was like, okay, you know, I, I, I gave it an opportunity. I enjoyed what I did as an NCO in the Rangers. So I was like, okay, this didn't work, but I, I like what I'm doing. Uh, so I, um, I stayed there for a little while and then as an NCO back in the Rangers, I was able to get accepted into, uh, OCS. So, you know, it worked out fine, uh, where there was a delay. Uh, but again, if, if you like what you're doing, it doesn't really seem like work. Yeah. Um, so I, I stayed in the regiment as an NCO. I, I was able to get some schooling and, and get accepted to officer candidate school. So it all worked out fine. Did you have a mentor there or something that kind of coached you in that direction? Because typically as an enlisted guy, you start looking at the differences between officer and enlisted. And some of us would rather just stay as an enlisted soldier. But then there are those who end up seeing other benefits that are out there or they're coached or mentored by an officer themselves that says, okay, you know, you need to look at these types of options available to you by going off to OCS and the benefits and the more long run term of it. So did you have that type of mentor while you were there at regiment or was it just something that kind of came about because of your brother? Yeah, it, it was it was more my brother than than the guys that I worked with. Again, the, the NCOs that I served with were amazing and and. You know, some of those guys are, are just retiring now after after 30 years of service. It's amazing. That's crazy when you think about that. Right. So so some of the some of the officers were, were very good and, and, and I really appreciated their mentorship and I, I stay in touch with them. But none of them really had that, hey, you know, why don't you why don't you leave now and go to OCS? I, I, I think part of it was I had applied to the prep school, so I had that desire, uh, but I just didn't have the time. I didn't have the schooling to get in. So once I was able to get enough credits to get 
uh, a packet together for OCS. That's when I made the jump. So I think there was the desire, but mm-hmm. there just wasn't the time and, and you know, the window wasn't right. Um, as I was a squad leader in 1st Battalion, I knew that I had a sliding scale that was getting close to the stop point also. You know, so you have to get commissioned before your 10-year service mark. Um, so I, uh, right at my nine-year mark is when I graduated from OCS. So you know, the timing worked out very well. So where did you go right after that? Did you go to a conventional force at Benning or did you go somewhere else? I, I did. Actually, I, I interviewed Colonel Grange was the RCO at the time. And they, they had allowed some of the prior service uh, enlisted guys to come right back to the regiment. They hired two or three a year. Uh, so I went right back and said, hey, I'd like to come back after IOBC and, and get right back in the regiment. And and he, he gave me some great advice. Um, that, that's why he became a general. Uh, but he, <laughs> he said, you know, you, you, you've done well as an NCO in the regiment, but that doesn't mean you're going to be a good officer in the regiment. So go out for a little time. Uh, you know, spend some time as a platoon leader and, and we'll bring you back uh, as a as a rifle platoon leader in the regiment. So I, I I transitioned to 3rd Brigade of the 24th at Kelly Hill. Right. So I, I could do an interpost transfer um, after 12 months. So, you know, it worked out perfectly. That was a smart move. I mean, isn't it the case that most, at least in that time frame, if I remember correctly, a lot of the officers that came into regiment, if they were a lieutenant, especially in the case of a second lieutenant, they might be somebody that just came back from Korea, and they would typically take those guys that just came back in that type of mission and bring them into regiment. At least that's what I remember. Sure. Yeah, Korea was always the quick route because it was a one-year um, OCONUS. Uh, so if you could do the OCONUS, it was a little quicker. Uh, most of the, the stateside opportunities were two-year jobs. So by the time you got released from your unit, um, you did have a short window uh, to serve in the regiment. So, you know, the, the inner post transfer was a great nugget to find out about because I was able to, you know, because of being prior service, when I graduated from the basic course, I didn't have any schools to go to. So it worked out perfect. I, I went straight from the basic course, you know, right to work. I spent my 12 months and went right back to rope and, you know, got back into, I still was able to make it back as a second lieutenant. So it worked out perfect. What was it like walking in the door again now, all of a sudden, you know, here you were as an enlisted guy. Now you're walking in as an officer. Was it the case where you were easily accepted or what, you know, how did that kind of transition going from enlisted officer and then coming back? Yeah, I I think there was some acceptability because I'd been there before. I was a, I was a lieutenant coming back to the regiment with combat experience as a ranger so different there battalion was some, there was some positives there but i, I think uh, no matter what position you're in and, and i think that's the great thing about the regiment is it's always a constant proving yourself process you, you can't you can't come back just because i've been there before when i when i left the first time and came back as a squad leader you go through that whole acceptance process again and, and prove yourself and, and keep doing what you do and you know, the, the release authority that the regiment has uh, applies to everybody. So you, you you know that if I step across a line or if I have an accidental discharge or do something I'm not supposed to, that's the end of my um, assignment there. So knowing that, you know, I, I had made it back as a lieutenant was a great feeling, but I, I had never been there as an officer. So I, I really had to commit to uh, training them hard, understanding what they needed, understanding it from, from my perspective too. I, I had just left not too long ago as a squad leader and weapon squad leader in 1st Battalion. So I, I had a good feeling of what I needed to do. I, I wasn't trying to figure out how to be a guy in a platoon because I'd already been there. Uh, right. But 
you know, how, how do I make this rifle platoon better? So that was one of my tasks. So you got one of my there. squad leaders was um, was Rick Merritt. Uh, so those are some of the challenges I had where this guy comes up to be, you know, the regimental sergeant major and, and you know, just amazing NCOs that I was able to work with. You know, Jeff Struker, Rick Merritt, Bob Gallagher, John Burns, you know, the guys that were in that platoon were just tremendous. Uh, and, and it was a was a great challenge and a lot of fun for a lot of reasons. Coming in the position that you're in, I, I feel like the NCOs there, it's like it's like a comfort thing knowing that you had been there, you kind of have the idea, you're going to listen to them because you were in the position they were on having a new PL and and then kind of not knowing the rope. I mean, like you you have to show respect and and prove yourself, like you said. But it, assuming as being an NCO, I would feel a little bit more comfortable having a leader that has been there also. And I think some of those are the little intangibles that you bring. You. I wasn't trying to figure out what that squad leader should be doing. And I, I was able to focus on stuff uh, to make them better as a group instead of trying to figure out the moving parts within a rifle platoon. Because I'd already been in one. I'd, I'd served in every position in a rifle platoon, basically, in the Rangers. So, you know, that, that freed me up uh, to focus on other things that I wanted to commit to, uh, which was a nice benefit to have. Now, did you see that, like, the successes during your training or, you know, being able to focus on other things and kind of give the ropes and, and, and trust your NCOs? Like, I mean, was there a ripple effect? Could you see that or was it just a respect among peers? Uh, I, I think there's a little bit of both, uh, a respect amongst peers. But I, I think when, when they have that, that trust and, and the ability to take the guidance and run with it, I think there's a little bit of that in, in most units, but you know, the Rangers especially, you, you have to know that those guys understand the guidance I'm given and they're going to do the right thing. Uh, and, and for the most part, you know, 95% of soldiers do that and, and, and Rangers, uh, maybe 98%. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, we were truly tested, you know, as a, as a first Lieutenant serving and, and you don't always see, the immediate returns from the work that you put in. Uh, our our task force that deployed to Somalia was able to see how effective we were in all the training that we had conducted in a in a real life situation. So some of this linkage that we talk about, um, some of this uh, ability to communicate with subordinates, understand uh, you know small unit leadership, who's that next guy to step up. Yeah, we we trained on a lot of you know, basic tasks, but we also took things to the next level. Uh, and and again, when we got in the big fight in Somalia, our guys really understood that stepping up into the next role because they had to. Uh, you know, so that was comforting from my perspective, where I didn't have to give a lot of extra guidance. I didn't have to um, I didn't have to coach and mentor them at that point because they had got enough of it. They they trusted what I was saying. They understood I had been in that type of environment before. So I think that relayed to some positives during a bad situation. So let's rewind just a bit here because you came out of OCS, you go off to Kelly Hill, you serve with the 24th there, you go back into regiment, you walk in the door at what time in 93? What what month was it? Uh, February of 1993. So let's say, what, six months or eight months later, you're thrust into Somalia and we have this you know, a deed that's going out there, and I think is what, genocide of 300,000, something like that at that time frame, and uh, taking all the food humanity was sending there and all of that. You know, eight months later, your unit is now going to save 
some military forces that of a helicopter that just crashed. And, of course, everybody's very familiar with Black Hawk Down. If you're not, then, of course, there's a movie out there about it. But this was really your big opportunity as a lieutenant. Now, having been a former enlisted, I'm sure it kind of helped you in, in maneuvering forces and thinking as a leader in that sense and such. But what was that experience like now being a lieutenant in that type of environment, and, and especially in this high-profile engagement that was now taking place? Yeah, I, I think the Rangers really sets you up for success to transition into those type of environments because you have such a solid foundation. Uh, again, I, I had grown up in the regiment, and we had done you know different missions, different different environments. Uh, we trained in the desert. We trained in the jungle. We they, they set you up for success by training in different environments and different weather and uh, different missions. Uh, so when they do take you and pluck you into a, an unusual situation, uh, I don't think there's a better unit suited for uh, that type of mission. Um, we, we, we conducted uh, rehearsals and missions almost every day we were down there. We, we didn't want to set a pattern that every time our task force left the compound, we were conducting a mission. So we transitioned into Somalia and started doing rehearsals, driving in the city, getting environmental. So it wasn't like we just went in and started doing active missions and had to jump right in and, and test ourselves. Uh, this had been going on for some time frame anyway, right? I think they had initially thought that they could get in there, take a deed out and all that, but it eventually ended up going a longer period of time. Sure. Yeah. yeah we conducted uh, six uh, fairly large-scale missions prior to the the large one on the 3rd and 4th of October that obviously gets all the visibility. But the six prior missions uh, were very successful. We, we had got in some pretty big fights. Uh, we had captured uh, a lot of uh, subordinates under Adid's umbrella, uh, the financier. You know, we had done everything to that point to set ourselves up to continue to build in that environment. You know, we, we realized that Adid wasn't going to be visible. He had gone underground. We weren't able to get any communications on where he was, but our leadership realized that if we could start getting some of the the subordinates hurting his infrastructure a little, that he, they may start communicating. Uh, so that's that's the strategy we took. Uh, we kept building through those missions, and and then uh, you know obviously the the third and fourth of October took a, a much different turn. I started thinking about the age group of some of our young soldiers today. I mean, you'd almost have to be probably in your 30s to even remember that period, what took place, what was going on in the world. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it'll be 23 years in October. Uh, so it's, <laughs> uh, you know, it is it is amazing when you think about it. The, the one thing that the book and the movie did was was give it a little bit longer shelf life, um, you know, for back, lack of a better term. Um you know, the book came out a few years after the mission. The movie didn't come out until uh, 2002, so almost 10 years later. Uh, so it gave it some renewed visibility and, and interest in what had happened down there. You know, from a, a book and, and movie perspective, they're, they're, they're good sources of information, and, and a lot of people were able to understand what the task force did. It's Hollywood, and it's a, it's a book that was written to, to make money. So th- there's, there's different ways of looking at that. Uh, but again, it did it did allow that mission to get uh, additional visibility. You know, the, there was a lot learned, uh, you know, during those two days of fighting uh, that changed the way the special ops community went into future fights. You know, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, you know, when even even Haiti. You know, in 1994, 
when they were getting ready to go in, they they used an aircraft carrier to launch from instead of launching from somewhere in country or or a, or a nearby country. So that platform of the aircraft carrier was a, a direct uh, response to you know what we had done by living right in the city of Mogadishu and deploying from an airfield that was very visible. Do you think that had a lot to do with it? I mean, I think during that time frame in that short window, well, there was 19 killed, something like 73 wounded or something. Do you think it had a lot to do with it that they kind of saw you coming, knew you were coming in? and I, I think they saw us all the time. Yeah. Uh, again, we, we lived in their city. I do a talk on some of the lessons learned and um, I'm a weapons guy. Uh, I'm not an expert with an RPG, but if you give me six or seven of them and right. hover a Blackhawk over me, I'm going to hit it eventually. Uh, so I think just a, a, a sequence of events, a lucky shot right, or two lucky shots, three lucky shots, um, you know, it still takes some force to take down those big aircraft. So it was, it was just the day that they decided – uh, they were going to mass some forces and, and, and try and make a difference. Could what happened on the 3rd and 4th of October have happened, you know, on one of the missions prior to that? I say yes. Uh, but again, just because of the, the events and the timing and, and the amount of people that were in the city, uh, they didn't. Does, does that mean it had to happen on the 3rd and 4th? No. Uh, but, you know, they, they got lucky with some of their shots. Um, they, they actually hit a couple of additional aircraft that they were able to crash land back at the airfield. So there, there would have been more than two if, the guys that were flying them weren't the most amazing guys uh, in cockpits and uh, and were able to save more lives and get those aircraft back where they belonged. Yeah, the 160th came about, but right after we had the Delta Force that initially went in and, you know, we had the crash and everything and everybody thought that these types of elite forces maybe weren't trained properly when in, in the real act of it was that I think that a lot of the helicopters weren't prepared for that type of battle in an environment and it was uh, it was determined that there need you know we needed to have a military aviation unit that is prepared for special operations and in support of and I think that's how the 160th came about. Right. So a, a lot of lessons learned from the Eagle Claw, the Iran mission. So the aviation units, the the, the command and control elements to to support them. So the you know the the first special forces command, you know the JSOC initially the the task force 160 uh, and they were able to deploy you know as early as grenada uh, and and then again building through these subsequent missions they they, they just kept getting better and better uh, you know the one the 160th aviation that night in mogadishu on the 3rd of october you know they without the normal air support of uh, ac130 you know were able to you know really carry the night and, and provide you know gunship gunship support with um, A86s to to keep that task force where they were and enough, you know, enemy combatants away from the people that were trapped on those aircraft crash sites. Uh, so you know, hats off to them. Th- that whole crew rest thing goes out the window when guys are in need. So they, yeah, you know, they they flew 15 hours straight just stopping to refuel and rearm uh, with two wow. two sets of little birds. You know, so it was just an amazing amazing night what they were able to accomplish and get everybody out of there. When you all returned home and, and the book came out and the movie came out, how did I mean, how did the guys that were involved in the mission, how did they feel about it? Was it something that, like you had said, it's something that it keeps the shelf life of the mission and the lessons learned. Um, it keeps that longer and, and more, I guess, a focal point. Or it seems to me with just that, with, especially within regiment and, and Delta Force, where we, you know, admire ourselves for being quiet professionals. And how did they feel about just the publicity of it? 
Well, I think it was a little bit different at that time, you know, in the, in the early 90s. The leadership at SOCOM and, you know, General Downing you know, made a conscious effort to, to get more visibility on what had happened. I think most of our guys from a, a tactical perspective still feel very comfortable in, in what was accomplished. You, you can read a lot of revision historian accounts and, and take it where you want. Uh, I, I had the fortune of serving in the community again. Uh, I was at JSOC and I, I was able to read a lot of different reports about the mission from different perspectives and, and, and still feel comfortable in what we were able to accomplish uh, in very bad circumstances. So uh, I, I don't think you know, the visibility from the book or the mission, you know, did, takes back from, or, or the movie, I mean, uh, takes back from anything that the guys were able to accomplish. Um, some guys were not as comfortable speaking in those type of engagements. So, you know, some of the guys that were advisors or, or had to do uh, an interview with a, a magazine, they did their one interview, they, they were able to move on and, and go back to work. There was a lot of people that wanted to talk to, you know, the Rangers from that mission uh, and a lot of the units. So, you know, we did an interview with Colonel Hackworth for Time Magazine. Uh, a lot of the different magazines came in. The news, I remember a couple of the guys were on, you know, Larry King and did an interview with him. So it, it was a, a fairly constant visibility piece for about 30, 45 days after we got back uh, to try and tell the story properly. And I, I think that's what General Downing wanted instead of reporters just getting a hold of tidbits of information. He wanted actual mission participants to tell the story on what happened uh, so people were hearing it correctly. I can remember uh, meeting several of those individuals. I, I don't remember names or anything, but I was there from 90 to 96 at Fort Benning. And yeah, it was, of course, this is well before the movie and the whole bit. And mm -hmm. I, I had uh, a couple guys that worked for me at that time frame that were former third bat rangers that were this is a guy here is one of the, the, the guys that was over there. And again, not having any clue, but it was just fascinating hearing the stories I remember of that time frame. And, it, and then, like you said, it was one of the first times really of, a, of engagement that was very similar to what we're experiencing today in Iraq and Afghanistan. So again, it was an amazing time, um, you know, being a lot of serving in the regiment was timing when you were there. Uh, some guys, just happened to be at the advanced course or at CGSC and they missed these type of deployments in the eighties and nineties. Um, when, when, when we were down there and, and in this big battle, you're doing your role. But you know, when we, when we came back and we did some of the visibility stuff, I think it made, you know, people closer. Uh, you, you told the story about a significant battle in our nation's history. Uh, our, our community came together, uh, the, the special ops community, you know, through the loss, through the memorials, through the rebuilding, uh, they just became stronger because of it. So it was, it, it was a tough mission, um, but it also was a, a positive where people understood the true capabilities of putting a task force like that together. And how do we get to the next iteration and, and make this a better uh, prepared, better suited organization to go into the next environment that we have to fight in? So there, there was a lot of positive feeling. Hey, when we're writing these AARs about how Humvees reacted in a bad environment. Uh, there's a real reason for this. And, and when guys go into another non-permissive environment in Humvees, we, we want to make sure they're suited better than we were. Uh, so there's, there, there's a lot of positives that come out of that. Um, obviously there's the negatives also, um, you know, the, the young kids, 
you know, you, you think of the young kids that are in the regiment today. My son is getting ready to be one of them. But, you know, we had, um, you know, young privates in, in my platoon that that was their first deployment. They, they had showed up following RIP and 18, 19 years old. And, and this was their experience and, and initiation into the Army. And, and nobody should have to go through that. Um, so they grew and they learned from it. And, you know, it's great to see them now at the reunions, uh, you know, the 10 year and the 20 year, uh, the positives that they took out of it and, and, and made their lives uh, better because of, Hey, I, I was in a bad situation, but I saw people react in a positive way. We, we, we were able to do something that a lot of people didn't think we could. Uh, and they used that to their benefit. So there's again, that leadership and overcoming adversity, you know, plays a big role in, in the civilian life after you live through something like that. So then you transition right over to the 82nd Airborne. You leave the uh, regiment once again. I guess you were going over to take over as a company commander at that point. That's right. So you yeah, had- I I, um, I left Benning, uh, went up to Bragg, and uh, I, I wanted to jump. The the guys at the Department of Army said I should go to a, a mech unit and get more rounded, but I didn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you could have gone up uh, light infantry. Up in yeah, the, um, yeah. You know, the 101st was the option right. uh, coming out of the advanced course, but um, I, I had a couple mentors that were going to brag that asked me to come up there. So I was trying to, uh, I was trying to follow a path that I thought would work out well. Right. Uh, and, and and again, I, I hadn't been to brag at that point, so it was a, it was a nice assignment and a, a good good command there. Uh, got to work with some great folks in the 82nd. And some, How did the guys in the 82nd special. embrace you? Because I can remember, at least from what I remember, of some of the guys that worked within the, the compound there, 3rd Bat, that there was no love lost between, especially in this time frame, between the Rangers and the 82nd. If I remember correctly, it was one of these deals where there was the, the jump into Panama, and the, I think the Rangers did a combat jump and 82nd came in more Hollywood style after you guys had already secured the runway. I don't want to stir up any bad <laughs> yeah, stuff, but I can not. remember this time frame and it was no love lost between these two uh, units. Sure. And, and again, I think that's all from a positive perspective. I, I, I like that type of um, camaraderie within units. Uh, when we went to Grenada, it was very similar. So we, you know, the Rangers got to do certain missions and the 82nd came in afterwards. So you, you, there's a reason why we were sent first and, it has nothing to do with who we are as rangers. It's the way the sequence is put in and the aircraft are developed. <laughs> right, right. You know, there's a and Panama was the same way. So, I think that's that's healthy to a point. Um, I think some guys get a little carried away with it, but you know, everybody wants to be proud of where they serve. Um, you know, when I when I commanded in the 82nd, you know, we had a great unit. And, you know, we deployed to to Saudi for seven months during one of the buildups over there. So it was a it was a good time. Uh, we took those lessons learned from Somalia and, and went out into the, the 82nd, kept kept jumping uh, and, and kept trying to make our units better. After that, you end up going over to, to uh, JSOC. It, it was interesting. I, I had come out of command. When I left the Rangers, I had to go to degree completion. I, I was a captain in the regiment and I didn't have a four-year degree yet. Uh, so I, I got in one of the Army programs for degree completion, uh, went to Columbus College there at, at Benning, UCLA, they used to call it, you know, the University of Columbus alongside the airport. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, now it, it's uh, Columbus State University. Columbus now. State University, yeah. yeah. It actually actually transitioned when I was there, so we had a choice of diploma. Um, you must have graduated so, the same time frame my wife did. She actually graduated from nursing school at the exact same time frame. She had a double degree or double yeah. diploma. Yeah, 97 was when they did went through that transition. Right. 
So I, I left the regiment, and, and because I had to go to school, I was a little late getting to brag, but I was able to go right into company command. Um, a, a friend of mine from the 82nd had just graduated from rope. They didn't have somebody to backfill him. A uh, guy was supposed to go into his job, hadn't made it through jump master school. So I was on leave, hadn't even signed in yet to, to Fort Bragg, and they said, hey, you want to come interview with the brigade commander to take a company? I was like, sure. But isn't that going to make a bunch of captains on the street unhappy? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't worry about that. Yeah. That's not your fault. <laughs> it's not their fault. So I showed up at Bragg, did uh, like three weeks uh, of training in the in the S3 shop and then did my change of command inventory and went right into a company command. Commanded, uh, like I said, I deployed to Saudi, uh, had a great deployment over there, uh, and then came back. And Frank Kearney, uh, General Kearney, who was one of my mentors, he was my commander at 3rd Range of Battalion was the J3 at JSOC at the time. And he asked me to come over and interview uh, to be the aide. Uh, he said, I, I, I've never wanted to be an aide before, but this is the kind of environment that I'd want to do it if you're interested. So I, I went over and interviewed, and it was one of the most difficult things I'd done. I, I'd been to rip twice and rope, and I, I'd been through all these cha- But when I looked around this room of guys, the captains and majors that interview to come into the JSOC headquarters are, are very talented, and I felt like I was out of place. So I went in and interviewed with the boss, and there was 160 guys there, Delta guys and SEALs, and something I told him he liked. I was very organized and had all these systems, and he liked it because I was a little older and a ranger, and he was a former ranger himself. So they called me the next day and said I, I got hired, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Now I have to come up with all these systems that I talked about. <laughs> yeah, you have to deliver. Fast, so I, yeah. I, it was a whirlwind. Interviewed on Thursday. I got hired on Friday. The following Wednesday, I left on a 10-day Europe trip, and it just never slowed down. It was just a tremendous experience. And you served in uh, Bosnia during this, this same time frame? Yeah, the Bosnia missions were going on, and right. we were traveling everywhere. Um, it, it, was, um, it, it was a great time frame. As a captain major, you're going to be a staff guy somewhere, uh, but I got to be a fly on the wall and all these meetings and embassies and all the travels that we were doing between soft units. Uh, so, you know, it really was an amazing experience. And then 10 months into my job, uh, we we had started interviewing uh, replacements for my position as the aide, and, and uh, that's when the, the planes hit the towers on, on 9-11. Uh, so they said, you're not going anywhere. It had been 10 months, our team, uh, with the communicators, and you know we'd all been to the, the, the driving courses and the personal security courses and all that. So it, it made sense to keep that team together as we were getting ready to deploy. The boss said, hey, you'll, you'll go to school whenever we get done. <laughs> I didn't know when that would be, but you know, again, it, it was an amazing part of, of our history. The meetings in the Pentagon and in, in Rumsfeld's office, the, 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 the transition from this peacetime army of 2001 to uh, a currently deployed, you know, for the last 15 years, we were the lead elements into Oman and into Afghanistan. And it really was a, a, an amazing experience being in that position and, and deploying, you know, once again, uh, with that, that feeling of comfort and, and your boss is feeling good about who you are and what you've done and, and where you've been. So again, I, I've mentioned the timing piece of, a couple times in the talk, <laughs> but it truly is. Uh, and, and, you know, now guys are deploying more frequently, but 
you know, back then it was it was timing and where you were and what job you were in. Absolutely, or smaller that, skirmishes. Yeah, that 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 proved the point there. Again, in two thousand one, we didn't know how long that was going to be, uh, but it you know to you know to be a, a captain major and getting to experience uh, that trip from that perspective uh, at the tip of the spear, you know, it truly was a, a tremendous experience. Think about especially coming and going within Ranger Regiment overall. And what was it like when you were inducted as a distinguished member in that in 2005? That had to be just a tremendous honor. It really was, and it was a big surprise. I, I, I always looked at serving in the regiment as such a privilege and, and to lead troops and, and to be able to do what I did. And then something like that was, was always a surprise to me. And um, I told the regimental S1 that year when I got nominated that they all the, all the real heroes and troops must have been deployed. They didn't have anybody else to nominate. So. <laughs> It worked out well for me. Right. Uh, but again, it's the same thing. I, I I loved what I did, and I was really fortunate enough to have served in those type of units. But when I was getting ready to retire, uh, one of the comments I made was the the regiment was always very good at training and, and, and doing what they did and, and deployments. Uh, but the, the S1 shop and their administrative process always had some flaws because they kept hiring me back. So it, uh, <laughs> it worked out perfectly that you always have to have one system. That's not always a hundred percent. And then that's where it worked. Uh, so that was their fatal flaw. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, and again, the experiences and the people more than anything, the, right. you know, the Bob Gallagher's, the Rick Merritt's, the, the guys that you served and fought with, uh, you know, Mike Foster, and, you know, the guys that had that impact as a young private, General Barno was my first company commander, and just those those memories and those guys that you ended up serving a career with, you know, it, it really is part of that development that you get in the regiment that I don't think you get as strong in in other locations. Uh, you know, the, those experiences and those bonds are built through those experiences and fighting. And the you know the the, the Somali guys, you can you can call four of them tonight if you needed something and. All four of them would try and help in one way or another. Uh, and, and again, we we owe it to each other. Um, you know, a lot of us are here because of them today. You know, so it's a, that's part of that equation. And you continue that lately because when, of course, we seen you last, you were at the Ranger Hall of Fame and you were carrying around a nice bottle of whiskey with you. So tell us a little bit about the transition now to the private sector and what you're doing with three Rangers. Right. Just for the record, that the bottle of whiskey wasn't open. I wasn't walking around. With it. <laughs> um, I, I I really enjoy the the nonprofit space. Um, I, I served for almost three years with the Rangers Lead the Way Fund up in New York City. Uh, Jim Reagan gave me an opportunity to get a feel for uh, serving and giving back to uh, the regiment. Um, so, which I love. It's so rewarding giving back to the units that you grew up in. Uh, last year, uh, I started to get some visibility on the Three Rangers Foundation and the Three Rangers team. Uh, and, and this January, they asked me to be the executive director of the foundation, uh, which helps vets. Um, again, a great team. And this links back to Somali again. Um, John Collette, the founder of Three Rangers and the distiller, was a Mogadishu guy with us. Uh, had to get out of the army because of a, a parachute accident, and he he got into distilling and, and did very well. He took that same ranger work ethic into uh, a distillery. Uh, they made him a master distiller and said you could open your own product line if you want. and And he thought up uh, three rangers, 
hey, let's do this. Let's get a, a, a label that helps a nonprofit and, and, and veteran support. So, you know, from John's uh, initial concept of, hey, I'm going to go to work here and make some uh, amazing whiskey and then be able to give back to a community that I came from. You know, it's a that's one of those great entrepreneur stories. Uh, I hope as we continue to grow, you know, John really gets the the recognition for hey, he didn't know what to do after he took his uniform off. And I think John's a great example of, you know, the kind of folks that we're helping right now. You get out, you, you don't have the right focus or, or you, you, you get a job and it's not really what you thought and you bounce around a little. Um, you know, John took an opportunity and, and really ran with it. And uh, it, it's a great story. And now now being able to give back and you know, proceeds from whiskey sales going to uh, veteran support initiatives. It's a it's a great loop. So some of the vision or purpose of that is to really, like you said, help these veterans and give them the tools they need to be more successful in the private sector. What is it like being able to to kind of be the mentor to these guys now that are coming back through this opportunity and with three rangers? Well, again, the mentorship is a, is a big part of that puzzle with guys leaving the service. You know, people in, in senior roles, more senior roles leaving the military, they're a little better suited for that transition, you know, with job opportunities or, or uh, you know, their ability to plug into educational systems or, uh, you know, senior level work opportunities. The, it's the, the, the E6, E7, you know, eight to 12 years in the army, they decide to get out. They still need that connectivity. And again, organizations like ours and you know, Carl Monger with Gallon Few and some of the organizations that we're, we're partnering with, uh, you, it still gives them that opportunity to work in a mentor capacity in their second life, you know, after they take their uniform off. Um, you know, we there's a lot of studies going on right now about those connectivity circles for this transition process when you take your uniform off. So you need to, in, in the military, you have just about everything you need with the camaraderie and the, the soldiers that you're serving with and your, your social network and your church, uh, education, whatever those concentric circles are. When you leave the military, you need to have those same circles. Um, if you go back to central Kansas and that's where you end up, then you need to have the same feeling of community, although a different community and not in uniform, uh, but you need to have the educational piece and the work environment and the, the church or, or whatever your denomination is. But that veteran connectivity is very important for the majority of these folks uh, to still have that that mentorship capability, that feeling of of, of pride that they left, uh, that that team that they served in, and, and being able to connect with like-minded veterans. So again, we see the value in that with our organization, and and uh, you know look forward to growing our brand and and, and helping out more more vets and, and and more mentors built through that system. If somebody wants to give back to the Three Rivers Foundation, what's the best way to reach out to you guys and contribute? Uh, yeah, threerangersfoundation.org is our, our website, and uh, we're on Facebook. Uh, Three Rangers, the, the whiskey sales also. And again, we always have our drink responsibly labels on there. We're, we're not trying to add another uh, negative quantifier into the equation of trying to help people through mentorship. John Collette went into the whiskey business and understands that there are some, some negatives with that. But we also understand that if it wasn't for John and his idea that the three Rangers foundation wouldn't be around. So 
we we ask people to to drink responsibly to help through you know the whiskey sales each each bottle that's sold helps out the foundation so you know as it starts to grow and get bigger uh, we'll get bigger as a foundation uh, you know we're meeting a lot of you know, private donors a lot of great patriotic folks out there who re- who really want to make a difference uh, so it's a it's a fun environment to work in you guys going to be launching here soon in the px and commissary or yeah the px commissary so this year uh in january the afes px system uh, picked up the contract so we've gone through the first initial sales 25 different bases across the u.s and the navy exchange also just picked up so we'll go into the navy exchange congratulations uh yeah it's exciting that, that's a great that's incredible great entry point for us and obviously a, a community that we want to uh, continue to provide for. A new state was just added uh, this month in, in Illinois. Uh, so again, as we as we build in growth and, and, and resources, and we're looking forward to expanding and, and continuing to push across. Uh, we're, we're excited about the buzz that the, the foundation and the, the whiskey sales are getting, but we also know that uh, we we can grow together and, and and make a difference in this space. That there's a lot of people helping veterans right now, and and we love that. But uh, we've got a group of guys who understand some of those struggles, um, who have fought through some of those struggles, and and we think that adds to the uh, the visibility that our guys have on on the needs. I, I love the environment myself. I, I was a military brat as a kid. I served as a soldier. Um, I fought and deployed. Uh, my wife is still in the military, uh, so I'm a dependent, and my son is in, so I'm the parent of a, a young soldier. So I, I see this veteran need from a lot of different perspectives. So I, yeah, again, most definitely. I, I, I love seeing it uh, from those different angles. Well, that's awesome. God, I really appreciate you coming on and, of course, sharing about not only your past history, but also about the foundation that you're involved in and the fact that you're, like you said, continuing to give back to the brothers and sisters in arms and those that have served through what you guys are doing is amazing. I wish you guys nothing but great success. And of course, you know, you can go to the class six store, hopefully near you uh, soon, if it's not available yet and pick up a three Rangers uh, bottle of whiskey and help support your fellow veterans. We appreciate it also, Robert, this visibility is great. We love what we're doing and hopefully we'll keep this, uh, this wave of interest and momentum going and truly make a difference. Uh, your your organization uh, spreading more of the words uh, a big plus, and, uh, and and thanks for the time today to talk about um, you know the Somalia piece. Uh, you know, we we talked about that during the talk. You know being able to to tell the story from different perspectives is good when you get it from a mission participant. Um, Absolutely. Thank, thank you, you, Larry. It's so nice talking time. with you. Thanks, Kat. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.